as this Lenten season, this countdown to Easter continues, we are sitting at the feet of Jesus and revisiting some of his surprising statements about what it looks like to follow in his footsteps. Our particular focus centers on the most frequently misunderstood and misapplied teachings of Christ. And last week, if you were not with us, we began with a startling lesson in anger management. And if you weren't with us, and anger is something that you wrestle with, I strongly encourage you to listen to that message. Because we received both the word of caution and reorientation from Jesus, not in relation to healthy, righteous anger, but specifically directed at our unchecked resentment and contempt toward others. Today, as he continues his famous teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will broach a topic we sadly avoid discussing in the church. And it's one that when we do talk about it, we tend to speak about it in a helpful, unhelpful, excuse me, negative, and frankly, hurtful way. That's right, Jesus today is going to talk about sex. Now, before we blush in embarrassment and quietly shy away to the restroom and never come back, this is a word we all need to hear. For at its core, what Jesus has to say is less about our sex life and more about our desires, the expression of our desires in how we relate to each other. Be not afraid. Christ's teaching is not, nor will this sermon be, a guilt or shame-inducing rant against sex or desire. There has been quite enough misplaced talk like that already in the church. No. As we will discover, Jesus' teaching about sex, desire, and relationships isn't so much about laying down the law so we don't break the rules. What Jesus is about to offer us reflects a deeper understanding and practice of the highest of laws, love. So, with open minds and mature hearts, let us listen and learn as Christ calls us to embrace the kind of freedom and intimacy we can experience together through a life lived not at each other's expense or disposability, but in honor and protection of each other's sacredness and worth. You have those Bibles open. Let's hear from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. It reads, Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus begins, as he did last week, by quoting one of the Ten Commandments but then pushing beyond a superficial or face value understanding of the law to a deeper appreciation of its intent and meaning. His focus, this time around, as we heard, is the injunction against committing adultery. Voluntary, voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than that person's current spouse or partner. Jesus seemingly extends God's prohibition of adultery beyond the act of physical intimacy to also include a man looking at a woman in the wrong way, in a lustful manner. Now, before we dive deeper into exactly what Jesus is trying to teach us, a few important clarifications are necessary. 
First, this lesson is not for men only. The reason Jesus primarily addresses the men in the room is because in both the Jewish and Greco-Roman societies of his day, men had all the authority and power over women. Men were allowed more initiative and latitude in their sexual behavior. Men alone had the right to divorce unilaterally when they chose. In much of the ancient world, a woman's identity and validity were solely defined by their attachment to a father, a brother, a husband, or a fiancé. Now, in our day and age, we rightly lament this reduction of a woman's identity and validity to her male associations, even as we continue to work to make progress in affording all women freedom and agency that is not contingent upon anything or anyone else. And it's worth noting, by the way, that Jesus was something of a progressive in his own time. What I mean by that is unlike the religious leaders of his day, Jesus did not forbid the presence of women around him. He welcomed and encouraged the presence, the voice, and the agency of women. Luke's gospel, in fact, records that some women, Mary Magdalene, Salome, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others were not only part of his entourage, they also financially supported his ministry. And in this teaching, one of the things, one of the things Jesus is doing is defending the rights and protecting the vulnerability of women from the power abuse of men. Jesus isn't upholding the patriarchy of his time as much as holding men accountable for the typical past they gave to each other in violating the spirit of the law against adultery. Remember, for example, in John's gospel account, when the religious leaders brought the woman caught in adultery before Jesus and sought his affirmation of their intention to stone her to death. I've never heard anyone ask this, but again, being the honorary youngster that I was, well, I was more of a teenager, to be quite honest with you, did you ever notice, did we ever wonder where her partner was? I mean, it takes two to tango. So why isn't he about to be stoned to death? Interestingly, if you recall this encounter, Jesus in response doesn't focus on the act of adultery, the woman being accused, or the commandment being violated through the act. If you remember, Jesus instead focuses on the one who bring this matter to his attention and question him as to what should be done. He focuses on the religious leaders. He focuses on the men and memorably declares as he points to them, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But again, this isn't just a lesson for men. Women, young and old, single, widowed, divorced, married, women too are susceptible to what Jesus cautions against here, especially in a day and age that is no longer like the ancient world, a modern society of greater liberation and agency for women. So everyone should be paying attention. But still, before we press into exactly what Jesus is teaching us, let us also be clear this isn't a lesson that's just for married people. After all, perhaps we're sitting here listening and thinking, well, this word of instruction is given towards those of us who are married. And since I'm single and don't plan on getting married, or maybe I'm divorced and, or widowed and don't plan on getting remarried, or perhaps, forgive me, you perceive yourself to be done with sex, then you probably figure this teaching isn't relevant to you. 
However, what Jesus shares here isn't just for married people. It's for anyone who relates to other people, whether physically, emotionally, or otherwise. And by the way, that's all of us. Because this lesson isn't just about sex. Jesus isn't presenting us through this teaching an exhaustive account of Christian sexual morality. No, while adultery is most often associated with a violation of physical intimacy, there is also such a thing as having an emotional affair involving, involving no physical contact. In fact, God on more than one occasion in the Old Testament even accuses the nation and people of Israel of spiritual adultery, of giving worship and devotion that rightly belongs to the Lord to other false gods. So this isn't just about sex, and this isn't just a lesson for married people. This is a teaching about relational commitment. And while marriage is one of the biblically prescribed forms of commitment, there are also other forms of relational commitment, such as the bond between siblings, parents and children, friends. What Jesus offers us here is a word and a way of wisdom in relating to others that honors the commitments we make to each other and protects the integrity and worth of all persons. But wait a second. Again, if you're savvy, if you've been paying attention, if you were reading carefully, we might be thinking, but Jesus here warns us against lust. And isn't lust about sexual desire? Although lust is often solely and negatively associated with sex, lust is not exclusively a sexual term. Lust can also refer to a strong, intense eagerness or enthusiasm, frankly, for anything. For example, as having a lust for life. However, in English, lust still maintains a predominantly adverse connotation as lust is often perceived as bearing such a passionate desire for something or someone that it overwhelms and consumes us, such that whatever we're lusting over is all we ever think about or pursue. But the actual word Jesus uses here that we translate into English as lust is in fact the same word used to translate the 10th commandment. The commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, translating that from Hebrew into Greek. So covet is a better translation than lust here. Covet, because coveting more closely conveys what Jesus is talking about in this teaching, a warning not against desire itself, but against the distortion of desire. To put this another way, Jesus is not condemning any thought, inclination, or look of desire we express toward another person. I mean, if being attracted to another person, if looking at someone else out of admiration is the issue, then we all stand condemned of committing adultery in our heart. But that's nonsensical. Furthermore, that's not biblical. Because there's nothing wrong with desire. The presence of desire is a God-given, assumed part of being human. Desires reflect what we long for and seek to fulfill us. And we know that desire is from our creator because God, as our creator, also has desire. God desires to be in relationship with us, to walk alongside us in life. God desires what is best for us, for us to enjoy life to experience what is beneficial and to prosper for our eternal good. God does not desire for us to suffer, to grieve, to die, or to be destroyed. 
So our God-given desires are not inherently bad. They are, in fact, further evidence that we have been created in the image of God. But our God-given desires can become distorted. And our desires become distorted when they aren't directed by, when they aren't aligned with God's desires for us. Desire becomes distorted when what we long for, when what we seek to fulfill us becomes divorced from our creator or even attempts to eclipse our creator, becoming a means unto themselves. Desire becomes distorted when we replace what God wants for all of us with what we want for ourselves, for me, myself, and I. For example, and I actually find this quite fascinating and maybe tellingly, in the English language, we literally define ourselves based on our desires. We say things like, I am hungry, I am happy. I am sad. We speak an identity. Think about that. We speak an identity. We define ourselves based on the fulfillment of our desires. But while desires give us information and point us in a direction, desires were not meant to rule over us or to be our identity. Our desires are ultimately meant to lead us to seek, follow, and enjoy our creator. When our desires enslave us, when our desires define us, excuse me, when our desires define us, when they become our identity, we end up enslaved to our desires. For example, the desire for food, our desire for food is not evil or wrong. Our bodies naturally need and desire food, good, healthy food. But when our desire for food, when our appetites overtake us, eating food becomes unhealthy, gluttonous oppressive, even maybe addictive. So the problem Jesus is addressing, again, isn't with our desires. It's about how we exercise them. And this brings us back to the meaning of coveting. Coveting is a distortion of God-given desire. To covet is the distortion of desire such that we seek to possess, to control, to subjugate that which we desire. Relating this to people, to covet another person is to objectify that person. It is to negate the humanity of an individual by reducing them to nothing more than the mere object of our desire. It's turning someone into a something, something to be acquired and then discarded once it's used up. So, applying this to Jesus' teaching, this understanding to Jesus' teaching, Jesus, again, is not forbidding men to look at women or women looking at men. Jesus isn't invalidating or condemning the normal God-given attraction that exists between us. To recognize and complement beauty and worth in God's creation, wherever it appears, including the body, mind, heart, and soul of another person, is not wrong or bad. To be attracted to, to desire, to seek, and acknowledge the beauty and worth of another person encourages them and fosters intimacy, enjoyment, and closeness in our relationships with each other. But to stare, to leer, 
to covet, to undress another person for our own pleasure and self-gratification is to treat that person as a commodity, as a transactional means to our end. And again, let me reemphasize this. A covenous look need not be sexual in nature. A covenous look is any look that seeks to overtake someone, to piercingly break another person. If you will, a covenous look is akin to the point of the power game known as a staring contest. What's the point of a staring contest? To intimidate another person, to get them to blink, to yield, to look away. But again, it's not about the look. It's about what's behind the look, trying to dominate over and objectify another person. And Jesus condemns this. Jesus condemns coveting, objectifying another person because it violates the greatest commandment of love. It dehumanizes a fellow image bearer of God from being a person created to be honored, cherished, and protected into becoming nothing more than the kindling for our inflated ego, the satisfaction of our misguided and presumptive sense of power and control. And here's the thing. Covening another person doesn't just belittle that person. It also breaks faith in our relationship with God. Because when our desire for another person, whether it's a spouse, a partner, a parent, a sibling, or a friend becomes distorted, all-consuming and possessive, we are turning the object of our desire into a false god. When we make that other person all we think about, all that we want, the only thing that can make us fulfilled and complete, we are trying to make that person occupy a role, a relationship that belongs to God alone that only God can satisfy. And by indulging such a mindset and a posture, we not only distance ourselves from the one and only source of our life, being and salvation, we are also forsaking the love only God can give to us. We're forsaking that love for a self-indulgent, unrequited, and corrupting love that is fleetle, fickle, and momentary, that constantly needs to be fed because it never lasts. And that's the final irony of coveting. We not only harm the other person, we not only harm our relationship to God, we needlessly damage the very core of our being. Because becoming enslaved to our desires doesn't ultimately bring us the security, the intimacy, and contentment for which we long. Knowing, no, becoming enslaved to our desires leaves us emotionally detached and even more isolated from others. Because when love in any form, when love in any relationship becomes transactional, we remain forever on that treadmill of needing to impress, of needing to be wanted, of needing to have another's attention in order to perceive ourselves as desirable, worthy, and valued. Given all this, it's a lot. Given how coveting, objectifying another person denigrates that person, pulls us away from the open arms of God, and fragments our very souls, Jesus then doesn't advise a band aid, 
taking some kind of half measure or a gradual course of action. Jesus admonishes us to act swiftly and decisively, to cut off, to cut out the source of such trouble. Jesus, however, isn't directing us to cut off literal body parts, to gouge out an, gouge out an eye or dismember our hand to solve the problem of coveting. In Jewish culture, the eyes and the hands were understood to be symbolic of the outworking of one's desires and actions. You might have noticed how Jesus places the emphasis on the right eye and the right hand. Since most people are right-handed, this is Jesus further underscoring the need to address the dominant or habitual expression of our desires. But again, The problem of coveting Jesus' diagnosis is not primarily about our body parts or our physical senses, the externals. It's not about that. Remember, the problem of coveting that Jesus' diagnosis is an internal issue, a matter of the posture and exercise of our mind and heart. Coveting does not begin with a look or a grab of the hand. Coveting, seeking to possess, fantasizing as a means of control, starts long before in the orientation and intent of one's will. Jesus is diagnosing an internal problem here. And yet, despite what Jesus teaches, we persist on focusing on external actions rather than paying attention to what's going on inside of us. In fact, you may not know this, but in Jesus' day, there was actually a subset within the Pharisees, a subset group of Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, a subset known as, this literally was what they were known as, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. According to the Talmud, the central text of rabbinical Judaism, this group of Pharisees so dreaded even the possibility of committing adultery, they walked around with their eyes closed or with blindfolds over their eyes, which of course caused them to stumble and fall in the streets or walk into walls, leaving their heads and bodies bruised and bleeding. Now, we chuckle at this, but in the history of the church, We've proven to be no less foolish or harmful in our application of what Jesus teaches here. Fixating more on lust than coveting and remaining particularly focused on the sexual aspect of these verses, the church regrettably has put more attention and emphasis on avoiding and cutting out external temptations rather than addressing the internal concern Jesus raises. What do I mean? Being told what not to look at, what not to watch, what not to read, what not to listen to, generations of Christians have grown up with nagging fear and sometimes even tremendous guilt or shame about their God-given sexual desires. Instead of gaining a positive view and expression of their sexual desires, many in the church have wrongly been taught to repress or hide them. And the net result of this false equation between sexual attraction with lust has resulted in two tragic outcomes within the church. On the one hand, it has left many followers of Jesus so fixated, so obsessed with their efforts at maintaining personal purity, not breaking the so-called rules in the church about sex, that it's actually only furthered the battle and division between the sexes. 
So much so that still today, I regret to tell you, as in the time of Jesus, women are left responsible for men's distorted desires. The church teaches that what causes men to stumble has nothing to do with what's going on inside of them, but has everything to do with how women look, how women dress, how women carry themselves. Quick note, Jesus here offers no such extenuating circumstances. According to Jesus, be it a man or a woman, each person is solely responsible for what they are thinking, for coveting another person. In other words, per Jesus, no one is ever asking for it. But again, this is only one side of the story of the damage being done in the church by misinterpreting Jesus. Because on the other hand, there are also many Christians who have been so strangled to death by the unattainable standards of purity created in the church that they falsely perceive that whatever the Bible and Jesus has to say and offer about sex and sexual desire is only prohibitive, it's only oppressive, and it's unrealistic, and thus have walked away from the church. They've walked away from following Jesus. But I want to emphasize this again. Jesus here isn't repressing sexual desire. Late breaking news flash, and you might want to buckle up for this, but Jesus being fully human means Jesus had sexual desires. His sexuality was part of his humanity. You blaspheme, pastor. <laughs> no, I don't. The whole point of Jesus' teaching here is to foster healthy sexual desire that protects and honors the dignity and value of the other person. Jesus, in cautioning us against coveting, the reducing of people to objects, is underscoring the importance of commitment and integrity, not just in sexual relationships, but in all relationships. Instead of diminishing each other, instead of debasing any sense of community between us by transactionally using each other, just getting what we need from another person, and that's the end of it, Jesus is counseling us to truly connect and build intimacy with each other through not just taking, but also giving to each other. Through not coming together momentarily, but drawing close to and sticking with each other from not being emotionally detached from one another, but openly bearing our souls and building trust between us. Beloved, sometimes those who are blindfolded are more preoccupied with the problem than the solution. There is a radical difference between engaging one another in terms that are appropriate to our God-given desires and treating each other as the object of our distorted desires. Jesus doesn't teach, as it is often wrongly taught, that the thought and the action are the same. Jesus isn't saying, once you've thought it, it's the same thing as having done it. Jesus is teaching us doing something, wronging another person, coveting begins the moment we decide to objectify the other person. We commit adultery, seek to possess what does not belong to us, to control the sacred dignity and worth of another person, the moment we purpose, we intend to covet them as the object of our desire. 
And the solution to this problem is not putting on blindfolds. It's not watching what you read, watch, listen to. It is long before we look with our eyes or take hold with our hands, coming clean to Jesus about the insecurity and discontentment within us about our identity and purpose. The immediate surgery Jesus commends to us is not the amputation of parts of our body, but the total surrender of our will. It is, guys, it is, as always, the call to die to ourselves, to die to trying to define ourselves, to give our life purpose through what we can control and achieve. Instead of looking for meaning, purpose, and validation in using another person to make us feel better about ourselves, Jesus is calling us to look, listen, and yield to the word and the spirit that together purpose to teach and strengthen us in the fullness and security of who we are in Christ. That we are embraced unconditionally. You don't need to look anywhere else for unconditional love because it starts at the top. We are embraced unconditionally and we are absolutely forgiven. Get over forgiving yourself because the man upstairs, the creator of all things, has absolutely forgiven you. And not only that, we are unconditionally loved and absolutely forgiven even amid our rebellion and resistance to God. We are absolutely forgiven and unconditionally loved even before we say we're sorry. So if you're sitting there and saying, I don't even know if I'm sorry, God says, well, I'm not gonna love you until you say you're sorry. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. We need to let the word and spirit teach and strengthen us of the fullness and security of who we are in Christ, that while we are not yet all that we can be, that we seek to become, that doesn't mean we're a lost cause or a failure. We are a divine work in progress. By the grace of God, still growing and maturing every step of the way, sometimes despite ourselves, sometimes even when we look in the mirror and say, man, I am a big hot mess. We need the word and the spirit together to teach and strengthen us in the fullness and security of who we are in Christ. That amid all our fears, and they're there, all our worries of abandonment and betrayal, that we will end up alone. That Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Because nothing can separate us from his love. The love of Christ. The love that is the very person of God. Nothing can separate us. Not even death. Not even the death of ourselves. The death of the person we thought we were. The death of the limited self we thought or were told we could ever be. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's the stuff. That's the mindset. That's the posture. That's the thinking we need to cut out and cut off in our lives. The stuff that runs counter to the fullness and security of who God says we are in Christ. That's what the word and spirit will surgically remove from within us as we die to ourselves and instead live for Jesus. You know, 
we often hear, and sometimes we even tell ourselves, hey, whatever we desire is fine as long as it doesn't harm others. But that's a myth. That's a lie. Because sometimes our God-given desires become distorted. And our God-given good desires become distorted when we reduce another person to being less than to serving as nothing more than a means to our ends. But what Jesus teaches us here is that our love for God and our love for our neighbor as ourselves encompasses not just how we treat others through our actions. It also encompasses how we think about them in our minds and hearts. Beloved, true love, the love of God, is never predatory. No one is disposable. No one should ever become the object of our desire. Following Jesus, viewing others, thinking about them, treating others like Jesus is about faithfulness and commitment. Faithfulness and commitment to the admiration, encouragement, and protection of the dignity and value of one another. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.